1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com.
2: Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis
0: Podcast. Well hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast episode 41 and we are looking back on the Masters tournament in Rome which came to a rather bit of a damp squib. Conclusion Catherine Whittaker because we were all looking forward to the big final between Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer and there was only four games won by Roger Federer. That was a bit of a disappointment but we've got that tournament to talk about. We've also got an exclusive interview, an in-depth interview with the great Australian coach Bob Brett who coached Boris Becker, Goran Ivanisevic. Nicholas Kiefer, Mario Ancic and now Marin Cilic and uh, he was even asked by Tim Henman once to be his coach. He's been really leading the the, the coaching fraternity for the best part of three decades now and we speak to him all about his early upbringing which he was mentored as a ball boy by the great Harry Hotman, who was the Davis Cup captain of Australia to 16 Davis Cup victories and also he talks us in depth through what it is like to work with Boris Becker. And Catherine, let me tell you, that is fascinating, to hear what Boris Becker was like just after he'd won his second Wimbledon and eventually lost against Peter Doohan in 1987, and then to take over the reins of an already hugely established star. Bob Brett is one fascinating man.
2: He is. It's a great interview. Uh, he's, he speaks brilliantly on all the experiences that he's had and there's no doubt he's he's coached some of the biggest characters the game's ever seen you know I love hearing Goran talk about his his years with Bob Brett he speaks with such affection and I see them greet one another and it's it's there's obviously you know special relationship there and he's now was coaching uh, um, Marin Cilic, um another Goran um, in the mould of Goran I suppose so it's a really good interview it's, uh, there's some fascinating stuff in there I'm
0: going to tell Marion Cilic that you said that by the way and he'll be pulling his hair out because he'll be saying I'm not crazy like Goran but I know exactly what you're saying the deep baritone voice is one and the same as it was with Mario Ancic but uh, Bob Brett I think he has a rather quieter life and more relaxing time with Marion Cilic than he ever did with Goran Ivanovic but we'll hear about the Goran Association in next week's tennis podcast in fact I think we're going to record it later on this week when the French Open draw comes out but we'll include Bob Brett part two in that interview and you'll hear part one of the interview in today's tennis podcast and it, it is well worth the wait believe me but first we're going to talk about Rome Catherine because this time last week we were showing off about the fact that Grigor Dimitrov had had a great run, and uh, lo and behold, he loses straight away to Richard Gasquet. But what we all really want to know, Catherine, is whether you're thinking twice about your assertion that Novak Djokovic is going to win the French Open after he went out from a position of strength against Thomas Burditch. 6-2, 5-2 he led, and he lost.
2: Yeah, I, uh, th- that is a bit of a worry. Um, I, I know you're going to give me a hard time for this, but... When I made that prediction, I didn't have any concern that the ankle wasn't an issue.
0: Oh, don't give me the ankle now, suddenly. Would you, you, well, you not think the ankle di- is a factor now? You diagnosed the ankle wasn't... as no problem just a couple of weeks well, ago. I'm not a you, you, you I'm said, You said he's thrashed Rafa on the down the straight sets in Monte Carlo. Novak Djokovic doesn't it, have an ankle injury. That's what you said to me on the tennis podcast.
2: But that was several weeks ago. It seems that there have been developments. I'm not a medic. It, it, it clearly seems to me that the ankle is more of an issue now than it was during Monte Carlo. And that is something I hadn't factored into my... But hey, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm changing my prediction. I
0: are you changing your prediction?
2: I don't think I am. No, I don't think I. I still think if if Rafa comes up against Djokovic at the French, Djokovic will win. I feel slightly less.
0: Best com- of five on clay at yeah, Paris, where slight- Rafa Nadal's won seven times. I,
2: I know the context, David. I I don't feel quite as confident about that prediction as I did a week or so ago. But I do, on balance, still stand by. And I know what Rafa did yesterday against Federer. But I don't think Federer is Federer at the moment. Um, I, I, that wasn't a surprise to me at all. What happened yesterday between Federer and Nadal? I mean, Rafa has got his measure.
0: Isn't it extraordinary what he's doing though? He's come back after a seven-month layoff. He's won six out of eight tournaments since he returned, and he won. He reached the final. Of the, of the first one as well against uh, Horacio Zabaya. So he's reached the final of everything because he even reached the final against Djokovic in Monte Carlo. It is unbelievable. Eight tournaments, eight finals.
2: Yes, it is incre- it's incredible. It's including
0: incredible. Indian Wells on hard court. Don't give me a butt here, Catherine, but you're going to.
2: Well, I think the Indian Wells on hard court was the biggest achievement of his comeback to date for me. I really didn't see that coming, him winning... That scale of tournament on a hard court that soon after his return, I do I do think the the measure of of his comeback will be the French Open. Though I, I, I really I think if he doesn't win the, if he loses to Djokovic at the French, uh, there will be a completely different complexion on on his comeback. Uh, Raf is not interested in being uh, uh, Rafa is not interested in being second best on clay. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think he could take not being the best on hard courts and possibly not being the best
0: on grass. What are you saying would happen to him if he, if he didn't win the French Open? I
2: don't know. I, th- I think... I, it, I don't know the limitations of his knee. I don't know whether he... I think his instinct would be to go away and say, right, I'm going to do whatever I, I need to do to be the best again. But I don't know whether the knee... The needs prevent him from doing that. I don't know whether he is absolutely as good as he's ever going to be again because because his body just places limitations on him now. I, I just don't know that. I hope that's not the case, but I, I fear.
0: Judging by the way he has started, I can't believe that just one poor tournament result at Roland Garros, disappointment, maybe losing in the final, would, would bother him that much. I just don't think he's like that. He lost in the final of Monte Carlo. What did he do? Wins Barcelona, Madrid, which is a tough one for him to win, and Rome. I mean, he's but he's all cleaning tournaments up.
2: But Djokovic wasn't there. He was I mean, there,
0: I, he just didn't get there.
2: All, well, all tournaments where he didn't have to beat Djokovic. Djokovic wasn't at all of those tournaments. I, I just, I think um, if he does lose to Djokovic in Roland Garros, I, I think... I'm not saying he'll go away and, you know, live in a hole for six months and consider quitting the sport. I just think that... Will be a significant event um, in his career, and he will um, he will have to respond to it. I, 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 and I and I think his instinct will be right. I've just got to be better. I've got to. I've you know he's a champion. I just don't know whether he's able to be. I don't know whether he's at absolute peak.
0: How do you think he's going to do at Wimbledon this year? Didn't he, yeah, he lost to Lucas Russell? Let's uh, let's not forget last year.
2: Ah. Uh, I I I just don't know until I've seen him at the French. We haven't seen him in best of 5 yet. I I mean the grass is is kinder on his knees than than the than the hard courts are. I of course he'll be a contender, of course, but I I don't I don't I don't want to be drawn going to win Wimbledon. Who's going to win Wimbledon? There's so many unknowns, there. Come on, who's going to win fair, Wimbledon, Catherine? We don't even know if Murray's going to play for the next three hey, There's a good there.
0: talking point. What about what's happening with Andy Murray? I mean, that's the second time in his entire career, in almost 600 matches, that he has retired midway through a match. And how about this for spooky? The other one was on his birthday as well, six years ago in Hamburg, when he injured his wrist really badly. Didn't play another match until the summer, uh, the, you know, the American hardcourt summer. So he missed Wimbledon, French Open, Queens. This situation against Marcel Granollers, he levels at once at all a match he wasn't playing well in, and he was clearly struggling with with the back problem. And then he withdraws. I mean, that was a that's so unMurray like, isn't it? I mean. My view on that is, I think he was in pain, and he just thought, "What's the point? What is the point if I can't compete at hundred percent? Why bother? Why not just just rest up a little bit and well, go and see what's happening?"
2: It's preventative as well, isn't it? You know, he's got his sights set on the Grand Slams, and I have I have to say, I think if he's, I think it's a very pragmatic plan for him if he does decide to skip the French in order to preserve himself for Wimbledon. I don't think he has a realistic chance of winning the French unless he has some enormous slices of luck and people lose,
0: or unless he suddenly doesn't feel the back problem anymore. No, I don't
2: think back problem aside, I don't think he has a realistic chance of winning the French.
0: Unless... Even if he played US Open level form or Olympic final level form, but he form. doesn't play
2: that form on clay. I, I th- I, I, as I say, if he gets lucky and people lose, of course he's you know it's not absurd that he could win the French. But I, I mean. Realistically, I think it is quite a pragmatic plan for him. To, I mean, I, I, and and I don't think he has a realistic chance of winning the French at 100% fitness. Really, so at whatever percentage he's at,
0: I think he does. If he was 100% fit, I think he'd have. I mean, you know, who's next in line? If you if something happens well, to I the th- top two,
2: I said this last week. I'd I'd probably put Del Potro ahead of him. I'd probably. Del
0: Potro's got brung. Kitis, I believe, at the moment,
2: fitness permitting, <laughs> I would probably put Del Potro ahead of him. I'd probably put Burditch ahead of him on current form. Well,
0: that that's a fair shout because I mean the match they played in Madrid was a very good, high quality match. Murray actually played well and still got mm. beaten in straight sets. Burditch was really impressive that day, and he he does seem to be able to hit through the clay. Really well, doesn't he, Burdic? And he's just on the brink now. I mean, he's beaten three of the top four. One of the, one of the questions asked on Twitter last week, are the top four coming back to the rest of the field? And no sooner did I ask that than Federer and Nadal reached the final. So, you know, nobody's actually winning these tournaments apart from those top four because Djokovic and Nadal are maintaining that level. Federer comes back. He's, he's suddenly reached another final and beating the also rounds as well. But Burdic has beaten... Three of them this year now: Djokovic, Murray, and Federer. He's beaten all of those three in 2013. So, what do you think? Are they coming back to the field?
2: They being the
0: top four, and I don't include David Ferrer in that.
2: Hang on, I, I don't quite. Understand. Do you mean are the top four regressing to close the gap with?
0: Is those the is them? the gap closing closing that... regardless of but whether it's suggesting... them coming back or whether it's the others getting better? Is the gap closing? I mean, look uh,
2: yes, at... I think it is. Yes, I think so.
0: So that suggests in a way that this could be one of the most interesting, intriguing French opens in recent years because other players have a chance now.
2: I completely agree. It's a shame that there are these injuries blighting the landscape because it could be it could be a truly um engrossing two months of, of tennis if but you know every top player that isn't at full fitness does does detract from the potential for it to be a sensational couple of months of tennis
0: I reckon that Djokovic and Federer and Nadal will all all be at pretty much 100% fitness by the time they get to the French Open I think that they're so good at peaking I think that Murray's a slightly different case because I think there is something going on there and, and he has problems with the surface, all the rotation mm. of the torso that you need, the trunk of the body that you need to be able to keep so supple. And I think he has problems there mechanically. I think his body just doesn't perform well or function well under those circumstances. Uh, that's what it appears to me, having seen him last year as well. You know, it's just, you, know, you start to look at all these bits of evidence and wonder whether his body's ever going to quite suit. Play in a, in the way that I think we have those slight question marks over Nadal on Hardcourt which he dispelled so impressively in Indian Wells. but Ian Warren in Melbourne says Rafael Nadal going to win the French Open and Wimbledon this year the double
2: God that's bold Ian a-
0: <laughs> on Twitter he said that do get your opinions in to at Tennis Podcast to us on Twitter and if you want to ask Catherine Whitaker any questions just send them in I'll ask them so uh, what, what do you think about Ian's prediction
2: uh, not not tremendously far fetched, but still I wonder what odds I wonder what odds you'd get for that at the bookies. I don't know. I don't know what I'd what sort of odds I'd give on that. 15 fifteen, twenty to one, something
0: like that. Oh, I'd take those odds, they're not bad. Um I'll tell you what, Ernest Gulbus' starting to look the part again, isn't he? He had a couple of big wins last week and then he pushed Nadal really close as well and I love watching that guy play. I mean, he's a bit of a nutcase. I mean, he, he, apparently he was giving a, a lecture to Viktor Trojicke about not going too far with your on-court rants. Of all people, Ernest Gorbis giving lectures.
2: Did you see Viktor Troychki's on-court rant, though? That no, happened. Well, yeah, oh, I sort of don't want to spoil it for you. I feel like you should just go to YouTube. Go, if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and check it out. It won- he threatens to default over a... The umpire overrules a, a call on, on the clay and he goes over and checks the mark and he claims to see a gap between ball and line and uh, everyone else is looking and they don't see a gap and uh, the whole thing culminates in Victor Joichki picking up the TV camera, taking it over to the line and uh, hovering the camera over it so that everybody at home can see that there was no gap between the ball and the line. It was the most mild-mannered of explosive... Um, rants at the umpire i've ever seen he did for somebody that didn't keep his cool he kept his cool remarkably well
0: <laughs> I mean. brilliant sort of lawyer-like uh, <laughs> uh, interrogation wonderful well that's uh, the men's tournament uh, in rome and the women's tournament needless to say has been won by serena williams yet again following up victory over maria sharp over in madrid she now thrashes victoria azarenka this is now getting just unbelievably impressive from from Serena Williams. She's getting better in her 30s.
2: And it's the longest winning streak of her career, wow. which is on uh, when I when I read that stat I thought surely not. Surely not, you know, she, there was the period there was a peri- period where she had the Serena Slam, wasn't there? I thought 2003. Yeah, yeah that, it, that can't be, but that is the case. She's I mean, she's abstained from a lot of the smaller tournaments in the past, so that's, you know, possibly why um but incredible she's yeah absolutely incredible especially in in the women's game where 31 is or historically has been ancient in the women's game hasn't it i mean yeah she's amazing
0: she is indeed. Well, that's uh, the tennis week that has just gone. The uh, tournaments will continue this week with one week to go until the French Open. And we'll be back with a full French Open draw to bring you that and give you the rest of our predictions. And no doubt I'll just contradict myself. But who have I said will win? Rafael Nadal. I really went down on a limb, didn't I? But uh, it's time to have our... Interview with Bob Brett now, one of the great coaches of the sport, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, guided the careers of Goran Ivanisevic and first Boris Becker. And it's in this part one of the interview here on the Tennis Podcast that you'll hear all about what it was like to guide Boris Becker in the height of his fame. But first of all, Bob talked about his early upbringing as a ball boy and on the day that he met Harry Hopman, the great Australian Davis Cup captain, for the first time.
1: Well... Uh, in 1965, met a man who on, in the stands at uh, Kooyong, and it just turned out to be the U.S. Davis Cup captain George McCall, and I ended up picking up balls uh, for the Davis Cup team for the U.S. Davis Cup team, and there was Arthur Ash who one day just said, "Oh, can, let's hit a few." I was 12, and along came Mr. Hopman and said, "No, no, no, you can't do this. This is a private club, Kooyong, of course." And if we do that, other people want to do it, you've got to get off the court. So <laughs> that was my first encounter. But the following year, I actually was picking up the balls for the Australian Davis Cup team because the Americans didn't come out. And that was then the, the steps or the step forward in what would end up me going to New York and him being my mentor and giving me this great opportunity.
0: And and when you say he was your mentor and in, in what way? How did he how did he treat you? How did you learn from him?
1: He he talked with me a lot about ex players situations and yeah, what they did, what he just little examples all all the way along for gee, until I was well, until he died. Uh, it was always something like that or he he would come to the court and he would always play, even till the day he died, even when he was 79. He'd be on the court, he'd be on half court and he would be feeding the balls, but then they would hit the ball to him and he'd hit it back, he'd lob, do everything. And he was actually very good, <laughs> a great touch. And as quick as he would feed the ball, and as the player would execute a shot and he would... In a flash, he would say, "No, do do it this way," and that's how I learned watching it. He would come to my the court. He would go through to all the courts actually, a couple of times a week, and he'd spend twenty minutes, half an hour. And in that time, when I was picking up the balls on the court with a bucket, I was also listening to what he was saying. This was the best way to to learn.
0: What what was his secret? Because. You know, I, I think every player, the past player that I've spoken to, has come across him, talks of him with such reverence. What, what was his, what was his secret? What made him special?
1: First of all, he was imaginative and innovative. In 1939, he was playing captain for Australia and Davis Cup captain, and they came from two sets to love down in I think in Philadelphia, Marion Cricket Club. Sorry, two matches down, 2-0, and they came back and won 3-2. And then he introduced two-on-one drills, exercises two on one side of the court, one on the other, and which then when somebody hit the ball near the line, the ball came back. Whereas if you're playing one-on-one, hit the ball to the line, maybe it's not coming back, I don't know what percentage, but a fair amount of the time. was having two players there, ball's coming back, it's the rally is lengthened, and it tests the individual more and more with speed because the, the opponent doesn't have as far to run because they're standing on half court. It just quickened reflexes, it moving laterally, forward, back, everything. It was just a great part, isn't it? and that, I think, was the stand. What we see today, people don't realise what Harry Hopman did. The other thing was, in 1945... He sent a young player by the name of Frank Sedgman, who was between, I think, 15 and 17. He sent him to a man called Stan Nichols, who was a gym in, his, working in a gym, and he sent Frank there to become fitter, stronger, jump higher, <laughs> be quicker, and five years later, he won... Well, seven years later, he won Wimbledon, and from there on... In the time that Frank Segerman was with Stan, all the Australian Davis Cup players trained under Stan Nichols when in their preparation for Davis Cup at the end of the year when they were in the fi- in the challenge round.
0: So he effectively was pioneering things that these days we take for granted. Oh yes, yeah, and just having a conversation
1: with him was very fascinating, and it was always the what if. So I might say something, and he would say, "What if." Which really humbles you (laughs) because he had an alternative.
0: So he put you on the back foot and make you think yourself, I suppose. Yes, yes,
1: definitely. And when also, when I remember being in Port Washington and in the indoor courts, they all have the curtains, and a lot of coaches would take a little bit of a rest and sit on a bucket that was for picking up balls, it was a decent sized bucket and he would walk behind there and just... <coughs> <laughs> ..and everyone, people would jump up. Fortunately, I was never caught with that. Also, when... They're just small details, but have such a an important part. He would... In, at Port Washington, I was there to sort out the baskets. Sometimes I had someone there, 11 baskets, to sort of balls of 250 balls in each basket, approximately... And often I was doing it myself, and you have to sort. And if one it was a little bit soft, you had to put it on the side, and, or if it was too soft. And the worst feeling was if, when he was on that court with a basket and found a ball that was soft, he would never say anything. He would just put it in the top of the basket, stick it in the top of the basket, shopping basket. I don't know which supermarket they got it from in those days. And uh, he just made... I realised oh, I didn't pay attention, I missed that ball. And that was similar to the way, I think, my coaching developed.
0: So he would always be getting you to think, make you realize situations. How does, when you come into your own coaching career, and and you've worked at some big names.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
0: Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com tennis. That's homechef.com tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Big personalities, some pretty intimidating personalities many people would, would think. I certainly would anyway. Um, how, how did that help you? I imagine it did in terms of your dealing with human beings?
1: Well, Mr. Hopman always explained that everyone was different and what Rosewall needed and what Lou Hode needed. Emerson needed something, Newcomb something else. And so that... And these little stories. Uh, Lou Hode, before the quarterfinals of Wimbledon one year, couldn't sleep at 11 o'clock at night and he went to the room and asked Mr Hopman if he could go for a run in Hyde Park. So he said fine, but <clears throat> he then um, sent Lou off on his run and he then put on his running shoes and let Lou have his independence, but he ran behind him because the park closed at 12 o'clock and he wanted to make sure that Lou wouldn't get stuck in the park.
0: So he was always watching over, wasn't he, really?
1: Yes, and so realising that everyone's different, McEnroe, for example, some the, phys- the coaches in Port Washington had wanted him to do something in terms of exercises, and he was 10 years old. And they tried, and John apparently said no, or we wouldn't do them, and then they went to Mr. Hoppy, said, McEnroe's his own man, let him be.
0: <laughs>
1: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's how... It's easier to realise that when you're working with somebody, everyone's different. It's not one way. It's not only the way the coach not to have one way and this is the way it is all the time. And no, it's it's different with with every single player, and it's a great experience because you learn just the, you learn so much that's it that you take from one player. And I was very fortunate to work with a lot of different players. And you try to use something that, with a player that you worked with before to the next player. You realize it doesn't work, <laughs> it takes you further. The first players I worked with were, were Andres Gomez, Raul Viver, and Ricardo Icasa uh, from Ecuador. And that was a trial for Peugeot, for Rossignol, before they were going to build the team the following year in 1980. So, and they gave me five players. Johann Krieg, Fritz Buning, and then the three Ecuadorians. And then it just evolved. And until then, after I stopped, then there were, I had four players. With Forget and Sundström and different people. And then Boris was the first one as an individual who I worked with. And he had practiced with John Lloyd and Seguso a couple of times when Gunter Bosch needed somebody or you know, you know, asking about practice. So that was the first things, and just watching him hit the ball, <laughs> fascinating, even as a 16-year-old. And then watching him as a 17- and 18-year-old winning Wimbledon was impressive. Not only the first one to win, but then defending was the second time was really good. I think that's even more difficult because of the expectations of everyone. And then in 87, there was the split between Gunter Bosch and he and John Tierney had uh, worked with Boris in the beginning of 87 and that stopped in September and then I started with Boris.
0: And it's you know I, I always think that, that when a coach starts working with such a, a big name who's had such yeah. clear success it, it's kind of a difficult task isn't it that, that he's already won Wimbledon twice and then you come along and and what what was your first sort of view over how to to work with him? I mean were were the clear things that you'd seen from afar and thought we need to do this, we need to do that?
1: You have to be careful you don't have any too many preconceived ideas of what has to be because often it doesn't work. It's more dealing with what having an idea of what you need to work on as from a coach's perspective but How are you going to get the result? That's the most important thing. And how's the player going to understand it? Because it's all about the player. But Boris was actually quite easy. It was very clear. I'd watched him play a lot, which was fortunate, and saw what he did best, and then tried to make sure that I didn't ruin anything there, and then tried to add a couple of things in the game that would help him. Well, actually, not a couple of things. Maybe one, or, yeah, maybe one or just to improve them, because there wasn't going to be much of a difference, and make sure that he was well prepared.
0: Because I mean, it always struck me that the, the circus that that was around Boris all the time. Because I once read that in Germany, his his recognition, people had a hundred percent recognition of who he was. You know, if if anybody in the country was shown a picture of Boris Becker, they knew who it was. It must have been a, a strange environment to to be in. Well, for me it
1: was... There's a big difference between working with a young player at 19 and working with someone at 28, 28, 29, 30, whatever. Like I'd worked with Harold Solomon and John Lloyd and McNamee. They were all much older. That's a case of really listening. <laughs> and then with with Boris, it's the direction, but I wasn't phased by that tried to keep it simple and it wasn't about you know doing interviews in the press or creating attention it's more important to just focus on the simple things and just make it easy for boris at that time and then try to find the simplest way for him to play well he was of course it's a lot of pressure when when they for example for boris to meet the expectations of not only himself but also what the public have. And he was like at Wimbledon in eighty seven when he lost to Peter Dewey he said nobody nobody died. And that is really the way it is. You have to keep perspective on really what it's about and just keep trying to move forward. But he was he was fascinating. <clears throat> and we had a very good time for three and three and a half years. And so it was interesting, then it, as, towards the end, it starts to became, there'd be more and more people around than in the beginning, more it's fans, and then after it becomes more more entourage, more people dealing with a lot of things.
0: Because I, I, I actually, I read <gasps> last night that you, at the time, you didn't give interviews, that you tried to keep a low profile and, and did your own thing uh, uh, around him. What, what was he like to deal with back then? I mean, did you notice major changes between sort of 87 and, and when you when you finished with him four or five years later? Oh,
1: yes. I mean, there's a huge difference. But just in maturity, just different and what activities they had, have as priorities and, you know, the, light and the, the, the list of them. <laughs> um, but, gee, we had... We spent a lot of time in the first two years, playing chess, playing golf, uh, just different things. Was he
0: inquisitive? Did he pick your brains a lot in those sort of times? Very
1: competitive. Very. Doesn't matter what we did. It was just. It was nice though. But he was. He would. um, There'd be things on the court, and I would say something, and then I would just let it be, and then he'd come back and ask, "Oh, you know, what do you mean about that?" or and then he would you know, he would pay attention to it. And then he was very good with, with things that he might be able to execute. And it was pretty simple. I mean, his game was really one of trying to put pressure on the opponent at the right time, and his understanding of the opponent was very, very good, and just when to attack and come in on the second serve return or just putting that pressure on. And his competitive nature and that's what got him through and being the big frame that he had uh, was something to pay attention to because you have to be careful not to overwork them and I'm sure that well I know for sure that in the beginning I was encouraged to make him work more and I didn't do that. I made sure that there was quality and it wasn't coming from boris <laughs> it was because the reason is that it's about recovery what the body can take and you have to be careful with injuries and that's because injuries are setbacks so you want to try to keep things going right the first year was first 12 months <laughs> wasn't easy because uh, he did well he, he didn't play the australian open that year in 88, beginning. And then he got through and he won WCT finals. And on the clay, he lost to Marion Vida <laughs> uh, in Monte Carlo.
0: Who now coaches uh, Novak Djokovic, yeah. of course.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And then he lost to Toulon, Two in Love in uh, Rome. Lost to Le Conte in, uh, in, at Roland Garros And, of course, you know, then his manager, uh, Jan Teriak, found a way in the media to say that the game plan was completely wrong and this is not the way you play Lacan. But I didn't say anything. It was just, okay. I didn't just keep chipping away at trying to make things better. And then the following year... Because Boris, it just... It's him. It's not... It was about getting him ready and doing some different things with the game. And the following year, he had his best year ever. And he also took off at the end of 88 because of injuries. Um, He took six weeks off. We made a deal that he should take that off. He had three weeks holiday, three weeks preparation. And then he went and won uh, the... ATP finals in Madison Square Garden, beat Lendl 7-6 in the fifth with a lead
0: chord. Oh, that was memorable. Yeah, and, look that one up on YouTube. Yeah, and
1: that was nice. And um, just that was, I believe that that rest actually helped him a lot and came back re, re-energized, you know, his energy level was much better and just his focus on the game and He started playing much better, just, and he had his best year, winning, he was the semi-finals of Roland Garros, winning Wimbledon, winning US Open, Davis Cup, it was a good year.
0: It's quite a testament to to him as well, that he didn't listen to Tyriac at that time, (coughs) and that he he persisted, and he thought you were right, and, and stuck with you.
1: Well, there was no question, that, and Jan told me at that time that I was not his choice, and so that was fine with me. It was good. And Boris was happy that we could work together. And that's all that mattered. Not a case of going against Jon or... Because Jon obviously had good intentions. But it's not necessarily always... the, the one, There's not one way to work with players. and But Boris was his own man. Not too dissimilar to, to John McEnroe. And... He was determined and very proud of what he's what he needed to do. So, you know, Boris, he he deserved the victories that he got and was great for the game.
0: It strikes me. I mean, Jan Tyriak is always a pretty frightening-looking guy to me, and and somebody who doesn't um, doesn't sort of admit he's wrong very easily, I would imagine. Did, did he ever come up to you in 1989 at the end of all of that that best year of Becker's career and say, you're right, Bob?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> 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 no, but I wasn't right. It wasn't right. It was just... not. I was not right. I mean, it was just Boris played really well. And that's what the bottom line was and that i think was is the most important thing in coaching that there is patience good work ethic and commitment to the player and making sure that they're the number one person to to try to push them towards maximizing their potential
0: if we fast forward a little bit to to 1991 boris reached world number one at the start of the year he was only there for for a few weeks but he, he got there and he got there in style won the australian open i think it's one of those one of the most memorable moments in, in the last few decades that the way he won the match he put his index finger to the sky to show that he's new at world number one he he seemed in complete disbelief and actually had to leave the court for a little while to take it all in what, what are your memories of that
1: i remember exactly that but in adelaide before the Australian Open, he was playing the exhibition and he lost to, I'm not sure if it's Enquist or Nicholas Kulty, And so he wasn't necessarily in the best of form. 1990 had been sort of up and down and the second half year was much better than the first half of the year. Uh, and But he got through the match with Camparese in five sets and then he, he had... A couple of other ones that are not really that easy but he just came through it and then he was playing really well at the end of the tournament he was in groove i think he lost the first set to Lendl and then he just turned the motor on and just kept going through him and it was it was impressive and for him to be number 1 it's a great effort particularly in that era yeah it's just to because he had lost to Lendl a few times before and he was putting it all together at that age and that was sort of, I think, the best time of his playing career, the, the sort of a few years there where it was very impressive just to watch him play.
0: I, I read last night that in the stands you were actually a little bit emotional, that, that, you, uh, that you, for the first time you may have... Shown a bit of emotion courtside because I mean I've seen you for the last fifteen years coaching Nicholas Kiefer, Marin Chillich and and your expression never seems to change to me. I don't think I've ever seen a flicker. Win, amazing points, terrible disappointment, unbelievable victory. Mm. Bob Brett's expression stays the same. Is that true? Did you show any emotion?
1: Well, there's a huge difference between what you're going through in a match and then what is released at the end and so of course during the match I'm just trying you know just looking at what's happening and trying to not show any emotion that because once you go on that roller coaster as a coach sitting in the stands you're going up and then down it's quite often that the player will see that and react to that whereas if it's he said once that he knew what I was thinking, so if I needed to be calm, that was sort of there, and of course it was just, it was a great achievement, and that sort of moment is definitely there, I mean, of course you're going to, there's there's going to be emotion, and just sometimes I, it's not able, is not able to control it the same way, I mean, it's just that end, and the sort of, I wish there was a gate to stop it, but... It's no bad thing, Bob. No, uh, it was just one of those things. Yeah, but that happens. You know, that happens sometimes. You know, when I'm, when it's there, because you and you, as a coach sitting there, there's no question that I can feel my heart at one eighty, two hundred when there's a point that is that is big. It's a big moment. It's when they're on the court. It. Uh, at Wimbledon or Australian over US, whatever, and just there are those big moments, and you just feel there's not anything that's sort of you can control.
0: Do You feel a bit helpless because you've done your work, haven't you? Effectively, you've you've talked to them, you've tried to get inside their mind, I suppose, and say, well, if you know, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you say if this happens, then do this, or if you have this kind of massive moment, do that? But courtside. You can't do anything unless, I mean, on the women's tour you can these days. You can go on, on 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 the WT events and and go and sit with them and tell them a few things. But in those days and on the men's circuit, you can't do that.
1: I'm lucky. I'm not with the WTA or <laughs> well, that ATP doesn't have those rules, because I don't I don't agree with it for a start. But first of all, the game plan has to be fairly simple. Uh, and it's more, once the player goes on the court, it's more about thinking about the future. What do you need to work on next? What are the areas that are exposed during the week, you know, the tournament, whatever, or during that particular match? And what needs to be worked on? That's really what, where I'm at. In, and I'm, I'm sure well, every coach is different, but I'm sure there's part of that in, you know, with every coach. In I think the, the most interesting part of of coaching is when there are rain delays. That I think is really fascinating,
0: because of what you when there you have a, a, a part to play and you can I suppose exert some influence.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a chance to maybe turn things around, uh, and it it happened at Wimbledon in '89 when. Boris won the first set easy against Ivan and he lost the second set and he's down a break in the third and he just sort of looking at the sky and I saw some black clouds coming across I thought gee it'd be nice if it rained <laughs> <laughs> and it rained so he came in the locker room and there's a little bit of a com- you know there were a few words he was not happy with me and didn't not talk.
0: happy with you well it's not your fault he's losing
1: no, no no the words were not what he wanted to hear right. and he, he, because he wrote this in his book. Otherwise, I would never say anything. And it wasn't actually all correct what he said in the book. <laughs> it was so, his, what did
0: you it say? Was his what? interpretation. So he's he's come off the court. He's he's down. Yeah. He's losing. The black clouds are over. Boris, this is what I think. What did you say?
1: And no, I just said something, but it wasn't. There was no profanity or anything. Which actually he's <laughs> he he writes in his book. Um, and he then didn't talk to me the rest of the time. And then after he goes back on the court, but it was exa- it wasn't deliberate to try to make him angry. It was just something to s- little prick in there, you know, little pin <laughs> in the leg. <laughs> and um, he then went out and he lost the third set because he's on a break. And then he won the fourth and he won the fifth. And it was. He says that matcha, that actually helped him. And he's, he came in, and then I said, are you upset? And he goes, no one speaks to me like that. So it was kind of funny.
0: <laughs> what well, I mean, what did you uh, then, actually say, Bob? No,
1: it wouldn't be correct, because, first of all, you know, I like Ivan and I like Boris. And so <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. Fair enough. <laughs> and, uh, but it was nothing bad. It was nothing bad
0: just something that you It wasn't you Ivan,
1: actually. I mean, it was more... It just wouldn't be... It's not
0: correct. But it's the sort of thing that you... Something that you could say that you felt could get him going a little bit. It it wasn't planned.
1: It just was on the spur of the moment. And that was sort of... It's quite funny today. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. And then he went out and, you know, the next day he played uh, Stefan and he won. He played very, very well. I mean, he played great tennis at that time. It's just... But... Sometimes as a coach, it's just saying something. Sometimes it can be, it's not in anger or anything like that. It's just more of just giving them a little kick.
0: Well, there's Bob Brett talking about his years with Boris Becker and what wonderful memories they are. Part two, we'll be back with you later on this week in our French Open special. And uh, he talks all about his years with Goran Ivanisevic, And it's amazing his hair hasn't turned grey in that time. But Bob Brett will be back with us for the second part of that interview. Hope you've enjoyed it and we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>